You're listening to a sermon from Lakeview Baptist Church. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. And before we look at the scriptures, I might just take a moment, personal word, and give you an update on what's been happening in my life and in Kim's life since I retired just over two years ago. I said to you that we would keep a very low profile the first year, and we did. I had some preaching engagements, a handful of preaching engagements lined up, and uh, went out across the land to hear some of the young pastors that we trained here through the years. That was a wonderful grace experience. Uh, but it's been two years, and I've not been here much on Sunday morning, though I'm often here on Sunday night and Wednesday night for prayer meeting. But God in His grace has opened many doors for me to travel and teach and preach the Word of God. So I counted up the other day. I've preached 98 times since I retired (laughs) in nine states and three foreign countries. So I'm busier than I thought I might be and some of you are aware of that, and some of you say, well, Pastor, you're, you're, you're busier than ever. You're working harder than ever. And the answer is, I'm not. It's one thing to go and preach and get in your automobile and drive away. It's another thing to stand in the same pulpit week after week, as Pastor Brian does, and shepherd a flock during the course of the week, as he does so wonderfully well. And... Um, Some years ago, I read a statement by Peter Drucker. Some of you will recognize that name. He was a a management uh, guru in the 20th century. And Mr. Drucker said the three most stressful jobs in the United States are, number one, the president of a university. Number two, uh, the CEO of a large hospital. And... Number three, the senior pastor of a large multi-staff church. And I certainly felt the stress of those 42 years as your pastor, but I didn't know how stressful it was until I retired. And even though I'm preaching a lot, it's like a holiday. And I was actually come to the place where I was uh, age-wise, I needed to stand down. And I want to thank the pastor search committee that found our pastor, Brian Payne. We owe them a great debt for their work. I love our pastor. He's my dear friend. And when I'm here, I love to hear him open the scriptures. And he is a faithful expositor of the inspired and errant word of God and a voice for truth and holiness, not only in this congregation, but also in our city. God's man for this hour. He has a big missionary heart. That thrills me. I hope you read carefully the letter that came to you, if you're a Lakeview member a few days ago, that Pastor Brian wrote, in behalf of the 17 compelling reasons, what I call them. He didn't call them that, but I call them that. In fact, when I read the letter, immediately I texted him and said, that was a great letter, 17 compelling reasons to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. He texted me back and said, there are more I could have given, but I just didn't think of them at the time. So if you find a reason there to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, keep reading, you'll find a few there. And I know that you'll be faithful during this, this season that we give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And so I pray, I pray often and regularly and intensely for our pastor uh, because now that I've stepped aside, I, perhaps more than no one else in the congregation knows the kind of burden it is to shepherd a large multi-staff church like Lakeview Baptist Church. And so before we read the text, I want want to just lead us in a quick prayer for our pastor. I want you to agree with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for 
your great mercy to us in Christ Jesus. And thank you that in your great grace you give shepherds, pastors to your people. We thank you for our pastor. We pray for Brian and Heather and their family that they might walk in the fear of God and continue to walk in the fear of God and that you might sustain them in the pressures of being a pastor of a New Testament church. And Lord, we give you thanks for this privilege to this day to stand and proclaim the scriptures from this pulpit. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. We say it, but do we really believe it's true? Is God really good? Can we really trust God to be good at all times? And in all circumstances, what about when your physician says to you, sir, we've exhausted every medical option. You need to go home and get your affairs in order. Is God good then? What about when your spouse says to you, I don't love you anymore. I talked to an attorney today and he will soon be filing divorce papers. Is God good then? What about you give birth to a new child and your newborn infant has mental or physical disabilities? Is God good then? What about when your employer says to you, uh, clean out your desk, you no longer have a job here? Where is God in all these situations? The biggest challenge to the Christian faith is how can a God who is all-powerful be good when there's so much heartache and sorrow and grief and suffering in the world. In Psalm 16, a psalm of David, we, we see that David reveals that we can have confidence in the goodness of God. So think with me about this subject, confidence in the goodness of of God. Psalm 16, David declares, keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 14 has, 16 has four stanzas and each one of these stanzas reveals to us a different dimension of the goodness of God. Stanza 1 is found in verses 1 through 4. In stanza 1 we learn that we can have confidence in the goodness of God in the face of danger. We live in a dangerous world, perhaps increasingly so as the years transpire. And so we see here that even when we face danger, we can have confidence in the goodness of God. We do not know when David composed this psalm, but apparently he did so at a time of significant peril and danger. 
Perhaps he composed this psalm when he was fleeing from King Saul and hiding in the caves of En Gedi. Some of you have been with me to those caves in En Gedi, Israel. But notice in verse 1 that David says to the Lord, he cries out to God, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. David's cry was for God's protection, and David knew that God was his ultimate source of security and safety from danger. Now, David was no coward. Even as a young young man, when he was a shepherd, he killed a bear and he killed a lion. And as a young man, when no one in the armies of Israel would stand up to the Philistine giant Goliath, David did, and he slew the giant with a slingshot. But David, in spite of his courage in these situations, knew that ultimately his security, his protection in the face of danger was in the Lord. That's why he would cry out, keep me safe, O God. In you, I take refuge, not in my courage, not in my military prowess, but in you, O Lord, I take refuge. David knew that God was his ultimate refuge. David knew that his days were in the hands of God, and he didn't have to fear death. A couple of Sunday nights ago, we had the hymn sing, Brother Adam taught us a new song, Sovereign Ruler of the Skies. And one of those stanzas there in that song goes like this. Plagues and death around me fly till he bids I cannot die. Not a single shaft can hit till the God of love thinks fit. That doesn't mean that all of us are going to live a long lives. If you read the story of church history going all the way back to the first century apostles, we read of the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and many have gone out to hard and difficult places around the world to proclaim the gospel, have laid down their lives for the gospel, but we go with a sense of assurance that God is with us until our time on earth is done. And so when danger faces us, we can know that God is good. Now in verse 2, David gets very personal. He says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Notice that phrase, my Lord, not just the Lord. He is the Lord, but he is David's Lord. And David recognizes that everything good that he has has come from the Lord. This phrase here in verse 2, apart from you have no good thing, reminds us of the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. And then he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. One of the greatest lessons all of us can learn in our walk with the Lord Jesus is that we are helpless apart from a, a serious, intimate relationship with Him through the, through the Word of God and through the Spirit of the living God. And he says, apart from you have no good thing, which reminds us of the words in James chapter 1, verse 17, where we're told that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. And so Jesus gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We are not left as orphans if we abide in him. Now I want to suggest today that the application here is not just from physical danger, but also from spiritual danger. And I say that based on what we read in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, we read, As for the saints are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. So here he's talking about the people of God, the people of Israel, the people who knew Jehovah God. But verse 4, he makes reference to the supposedly the, the surrounding nations who had false gods. Verse 4, The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. And so we see this contrast here between the people of God on one hand in verse 3 and the people who do not know God in verse 4. 
And David embraced those who knew the Lord, who delighted themselves in the Lord, and David delighted himself in them. That is a reminder to us that we need the family of faith. When we neglect the experience of corporate worship on the Lord's Day, when we're haphazard about our worship uh, disciplines, then we, we, we suffer spiritually. We need one another to support each other. And David delighted in the Lord, and he delighted in the, in the saints and the land. He says, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. But regarding those in verse 4 who run after other gods, David said he would not even join, him, join himself with or even speak of those who did not live for the Lord. In fact, he says in verse 4, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Now, if you want to bring sorrow into your life, then run after false gods because false gods will never, never satisfy you. They will never deliver. They will overpromise and underdeliver. And, of course, we wouldn't run after false gods like were true in, in David's day, those who worship Baal, those who worship Moloch. But what about the false gods of silver and gold, of uh, power and position and prestige and possessions? These gods never satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. Multiplied gods bring multiplied heartache. And I remind you, Satan is a crafty foe. And Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the adversary wants to take away your joy, your peace, your contentment in the Lord. Now, we are not helpless in the face of the adversary. We are not helpless in the face of temptation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul pens these words for our encouragement. Uh, there, there we read in verse 12 and following, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Let me just pause there and say, if you think you would never fall, then you're a sitting target. And Paul says, be careful if you think you are immune to certain temptations. But he goes on to say in verse 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And uh, God... Uh, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. No matter how strong the temptation may seem, God is not going to have a, let a temptation come your way that you cannot bear it and resist it. But the promise here, when you are tempted, He, the Lord, will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And so not only is there this, this physical danger that God is our refuge, but the Lord is our refuge from spiritual danger. And we face spiritual danger every single day. But we can have confidence in the goodness of God in the face of danger, whether it's physical danger or spiritual danger. There is a second stanza found in verses 5 and 6. In these verses, in the second stanza, we can, we can see that we can have confidence in the face of God in the goodness of God, I should say, in the face of doubt. Now, David knew the Lord had sovereignly chosen him to be the next king of Israel. And even though David's situation apparently looked bleak at this moment, he knew that God had chosen him, that he would be the successor to King Saul. And so he cries out in verses 5 and 6, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Uh, David knew that his place in the society of ancient Israel had been assigned to him by God. He didn't choose to be king. God chose him. And when David says here in verse 5, You have assigned me my portion and my cup. And my lot, he is talking of the circumstances in his life. That is, David's lot in life first was as a shepherd. God assigned him there. And then as a military commander, God assigned him there. And ultimately as the king over the nation 
of Israel. Here we see the sovereign hand of God working in David's life. And in verse 6, David says of that, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, and I have a delightful inheritance. Well, God does assign us our lot in life. True for David. True for you. True for me. You think about it. Did you choose your parents? God did. Did you choose where you were born? No. God did. Uh, did you choose where you, were, where you were born? For the time of your birth? No. In fact, the Apostle Paul spoke to this very issue when he was uh, speaking uh, there in Athens on Mars Hill. We find these words in Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27. There Paul proclaimed from one man, that's Adam, he, that's God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, God, determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And why did God do it this way? Verse 27, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And so God has placed you where he has placed you that you might seek him. And if you seek him, you will find him, for he's not far from us if we sincerely and humbly seek the Lord. So God in his sovereign grace determines the place of our birth, who our parents are, the time of our birth. Therefore, David says, do not doubt God's goodness in these matters. Do you ever doubt God's goodness? I have to confess to you, sometimes I'm not, I don't think I'm doubting, but I've said to the Lord, I sure wish I could have been born in the second half of the 19th century and lived in London so that I could have heard the great Spurgeon preach at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. But instead, God let me be born in Florella, Alabama. And uh, I have no, no uh, regrets of where God let me be born, really, or who my parents are. God is sovereignly working in all the affairs of creation to affect his will. But the devil wants us to doubt. I, I, I had been pastor here for 11 years, from 1979 to 1990. It had been the desire of my heart to have a ministry in this city. When I was a student at Auburn University, God called me to preach, and I transferred midway through my second year in school from Auburn to Sanford. That's what good Baptist boys did in those days, Baptist preacher boys. And, but I had, a, I had a desire even then that someday I would get to come back to Auburn and uh, be a pastor. Eleven plus years later, God brought me here to be your pastor. And so for the 11 years, we had, uh, we had wonderful growth. We had, uh, in fact, uh, every year the average attendance for those first 11 years was higher than the year before. That's not always been the case, but it was those 11 years. And in late May and early, excuse me, late April and early May, uh, John West and I had a team, our first ever mission team to London. And when the mission was over, the team left and came home and Kim and I and John and Elsa, we flew to Europe and spent some time in Switzerland and, and Austria. And during those days, a spirit of melancholy came over me. It just came quickly. And I was sad, and I couldn't explain it. Everything was going well at Lakeview. My marriage was fine. My kids were healthy and doing well. Uh, but that a spirit of, I think, depression, not clinical depression, but some depression came on me. And it's like a, the sun ceased to shine and a dark cloud came between me and the, the sun. And so it went from May to June to July to August. And during those four months, 
I seriously questioned if God wanted me to stay here. Not that I didn't think he'd call me here, but I had begun to doubt uh, if I was adequate to be your pastor. I've never doubted the existence of God. I've never had one second of doubt about the fact that Jesus saved me when I was a 10-year-old boy. I've never doubted that God called me to preach. But I had real doubts that I was adequate to be pastor of this church. And I would try to pray, and I couldn't pray. And for week after week after week, all the thing I could say was, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. And it seemed as if Jesus was distant and not available to help me. I would get up early in the morning and walk in the neighborhood before the sun would come up. I came in one day and I took out a sheet of paper, pen, and I, I wrote down seven reasons why I'm no longer qualified to be pastor of Lakeview Baptist Church. Seven. I thought they were good. And I held the paper up as if, you know, God was looking. I'm sure he was. I said, here, God, here are seven reasons why you should release me from being pastor of Lakeview Baptist Church. God hadn't said anything to me for weeks, but he spoke. You say, was it audible? No, it's louder. And this is what I heard the Spirit of God say to me in my spirit. Seven? Is that all you can think of? Seven? And then he went silent again for several weeks. I'd come, I'd, come, I'd come to my study on Sunday morning, and 10 minutes before the first service, I'd be on my face crying, God, please, Jesus, come back. I can't go out and face them. I have nothing to give them. But God gave me grace, and I went out and preached. I had no emotion in it. It was just flat. And one day I came in from early morning walk, and the sun was now up so that I could see and I sat down on the back deck, and I just opened my Bible. It just fell open to Psalm 16, and I started reading. And when I got to verse 5, it's like the words were raised on the page of my Bible. And I read, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. God spoke to me through his word to assure me that my portion and my cup and my lot was Lakeview Baptist Church and the boundary lines for me was Auburn, Alabama. God gave me this word in my hour of need. And then I didn't hear anything else from God. And then toward the end of the summer, as quickly as that spirit of melancholy fell upon me, I woke up one day and it was gone. Now, I didn't know at the time, but as I reflect back upon those months, I believe that God gave me a spirit of sadness and melancholy and mild depression to help me identify with people who live in that realm for years and years and years. But I was beginning to doubt my, my, my ability to be your pastor, but God assured me. And then he gave me 31 more years to serve this church, for which I give him thanks, and I give you thanks. Do not doubt in the dark what the Lord has shown you in the light. If God has shown you his way, walking his way, where you can see every step going forward, we can have confidence in the goodness of God in the face of both danger and doubt. But there's a third stanza here in verses 7 and 8. Not just confidence in the goodness of God in danger and doubt, but 
Number three, we can have confidence in the goodness of God in the face of difficulties. Uh, Difficulties are uh, common to all people. Everyone experiences difficulties. Rich and poor, male and female, red, yellow, black, white, and no one is exempt. We, we all have hardships and troubles and difficulties. It will shake us to the very foundation. But David said in verse 8, look in the, uh, the last part of verse 8, uh, because he, the Lord, is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Satan, excuse me, Jesus said to Peter, Satan, uh, the devil is, wants to sift you, but I prayed for you. And God prays for us. We read in Hebrews that uh, uh, the resurrected, exalted, ascended Lord intercedes for the saints before the throne of grace. He's calling our name. And so when difficulties come, let us not... Uh, forget that the Lord is with us. Now, why could David say, I will not be shaken? Look in verse 7. Here's the foundation for that statement. Verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. Psalm 46, verse 10, we read, be still and know that I am God. If we will be still, we can know the voice of God as he speaks to us through his word and through his spirit uh, to us as we Listen to him. David talks about the Lord counseling him and instructing him in the nighttime hours. When you awake in the middle of the night and have trouble going back to sleep, just say, Lord, speak to me. There's not going to be any distractions at 3 a.m. if you'll just listen to God. And you'll be amazed at what the Lord will say to you. And so we, we know that David had the Lord's counsel. Uh, but there's a second reason that David would not be shaken by difficulties. Look again in verse 8, first part of verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Now what does it mean to set the Lord before you? It means to walk in the presence of God. It means to just to live your life before the face of God. And, and, and he says here, because he is at my right hand. When the Lord is at our right hand, that means the Lord is nearby. So when difficulties come our way, let us never forget that God is with us. He is nearby. And he will sustain us in our difficulties. I I don't think any follower of the Lord Jesus Christ had any greater difficulties than the Apostle Paul. You read the book of Acts. You you read his second letter to the church in Corinth, which is the most autobiographical of all of Paul's letters. And he Page after page, chapter after chapter, he he lays out the hardships uh, that he faced as a preacher of the gospel in the first century. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 7, the Apostle Paul penned these words, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations. Those surpassing great revelations, he talked about earlier in that chapter when Paul said, he got caught up to the third heaven. He said, I saw things and heard things that no man can, can, can comprehend. But God gave him that experience. And you would think it would be a, an occasion for Paul to be puffed up with pride, and perhaps it would have been. But he says here, God kept me from being conceited because of these revelations. There was given to me a thorn in my flesh. We don't know what that was. We do know it was a messenger of Satan to torment me. And Paul says in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's grace is sufficient for every trial, every difficulty, every hardship that ever comes our way. He goes on to say, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And so when the fiery trials come our way, the difficulties pile up 
It is an occasion for us to draw near to God, to never question the goodness of God, but to know that God is working in those circumstances to conform us to the image of his Son, to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be confident that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. We can be confident in the goodness of God in the face of danger, in the face of doubt, and in the face of difficulty. There's a fourth stanza here in verses 9 through 11. And in this fourth stanza, this final stanza, we see that we can have confidence in the goodness of God in the face of death. Now, death is the final enemy. But in Christ Jesus, the victory has been won. Uh, to delight in the Lord and his goodness and then to lose all those blessings at death would be a great tragedy indeed. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is in the coming kingdom. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes again and ushers in his kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. And we see here in, in, in Psalm 16 that David had a living hope of the future resurrection. Look in verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Paul is saying here, my body's going to die someday, and I'll be buried in a tomb somewhere. It'll, it'll rest secure, but I'm not overwhelmed by that because my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. How could this be? Look in verse 10. Because you, God, David says, will not abandon me to the grave. Now, some would say to us that there's no doctrine of the resurrection in the Old Testament to which we simply say you haven't read the Old Testament this is not the only place that it's found but this is, this is a clear messianic psalm right here but David, David believed that he would be raised from the dead he said you will not abandon me to the grave I, I'm not in the grave forever I'm not going to be abandoned someday I'll be resurrected in Psalm 17, verse 15, we read, uh, this is also a psalm, a prayer of David, and I, in righteousness, I, David, will see your God's face when I wake. I will be satisfied by seeing your likeness. David had confidence Perhaps he couldn't fully comprehend how it's all going to take place, but he had confidence that he would be raised from the dead. Now, we see this also spelled out when the, the son born of Bathsheba uh, and uh, David, their union, took sick. And for some, we don't know how, many, how long it was, but apparently several days, maybe a little bit longer. And, and we read that David was, was uh, fasting and praying and crying out to God to spare the child, to let the child live. So much so that, that uh, his servants were concerned about him. He wouldn't eat. And then the infant died. And when the child died, uh, David washed himself. He anointed himself. He ate again. And the servants in the palace there, they, they were like, we don't, uh, we don't understand when the child was, was still alive, you... You, you fasted and prayed, and now that the child is deceased, you, you, you put aside that mourning. And do you remember what uh, the Scripture says that David said? He said something to this effect, I can't bring the child back, but I will go where he is and see him again. David believed in the resurrection of the dead. He believed he would see that infant child someday in glory. And not just David, but also uh, Job, that great sage. Uh, listen to these words about Job, a man who suffered incredible hardship. Uh, in Job chapter 19, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. 
And after my skin has been destroyed, that is, after the body has decayed, yet in my flesh, that is, in the resurrection, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me and how our hearts ought to yearn within us for the King Jesus to come again that we might see him face to face and receive from him our glorified resurrection bodies. That is our destiny as the sons and daughters of God. David believed he would be buried and someday be raised from the dead. But not just himself. David believed that his descendant, a son of David, one superior to David, would die and be raised. This is a messianic psalm. He's talking about the Lord Jesus here in uh, verse 10, the latter part of verse 10. There we read, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Some of you have translations that say or. Mine says nor, but it's a transition word there. Uh, David says, not only will I not see decay, I'm going to be raised, but there's another who will not see decay, who never saw decay. And you'll notice that the phrase Holy One is capitalized in, in our text. And so David could not be speaking of himself here. He has to be speaking of someone else who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we see that both Peter and Paul reference Psalm 16 when preaching the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we see it in Acts chapter 2. Paul was preaching there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. That's the day that 3,000 were converted and baptized. And uh, this is just a portion of his sermon beginning in Acts 2 verse 22 and following. Peter declared, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The cross was not an afterthought to God. The the cross of Christ was, was, was determined in eternity past. Before God ever made the world, God knew uh, that uh, Adam would sin and we would inherit Adam's sinful nature and we would need a redeemer and God purpose in eternity past the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. But look in verse 24, but God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Then in verse 25, 6, 7, and 8, David quotes, excuse me, Peter quotes from Psalm 16. There David said about him, about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Peter's plagiarizing King David. And rightly so. So this tells us that what we read in Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm. Then there's the sermon that uh, Paul the Apostle preached in Pisidian Antioch, which we find recorded for us in Acts chapter 13. And uh, just look in verses 32 and following. Peter says, We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, He has also fulfilled for us, their children, watch this, by raising up Jesus. And as is written in the second Psalm, this is from Psalm 2, You are my son, today I become your father, which tells us Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. Verse 34, the fact that God raised from the dead never to decay is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. And then verse 35, he quotes from Psalm 16. So it's stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Surely the Lord Jesus had Psalm 16 in mind when he said in Mark 8 and Mark 9 and Mark 10, we must go to Jerusalem and there the Son of Man will be arrested. He'll be, uh, 
he'll be crucified, but he'll be raised on the third day. This is all a part of God's plan. And so we have this resurrection hope. David had it. Peter had it. Paul had it. It's rooted and grounded in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, David could say in verse 11, you have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. It was true for David. And it will be true for us if we'll draw near to God. The path of life is spelled out through the cross of Christ and his resurrection as we seek the Lord in faith. True, lasting, deep-seated joy is found in God's presence and only in God's presence. Even when our hearts are breaking, there is that deep-seated joy that the Spirit of God floods our hearts with and is found in the presence of the Lord. If you seek joy in any other source, you'll always come away disappointed. But seek it in Him, in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The closer we draw near to God, the greater joy we will experience. The further we distance ourselves from God, the less joy we experience. It's true when David penned these words. It's true today. It's true in eternity. For those of us who are in Christ, our future is glorious. Tragically, far too many people don't believe that. Alfred North Whitehead was a very prominent Harvard professor and philosopher. He asked a friend one day, quote, As for Christian theology, can you imagine anything more appalling than the idiotic Christian idea of heaven? Now, maybe he was just thinking about the gates of pearl and the streets of gold, of which I believe are literal. But the focal point of heaven is not the streets of gold or the gates of pearl. The focus of heaven is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the central glory and the joy of heaven. And the thing that's going to make heaven heaven is because we will be in fellowship with him, unbroken fellowship, not hindered by any kind of sin at all. It is our destiny in Christ Jesus. And the joy that we experience now in his presence pales into comparison with what we will experience when we see him face to face. The Apostle John says, when we see him, we will be like him. Hallelujah, that is our destiny in Christ. Verse 11, eternal pleasures at your right hand. We have pleasure and joy in the presence of God now and in heaven It'll be unending, never-ending. In the last battle, some of you read the works of C.S. Lewis. Lewis said of heaven, chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth can, has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Are you experiencing the joy of intimate fellowship with God, do you? If not, why not? You can, if you'll draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. And the more we draw near to God, the closer we get to God, the sweeter is the fellowship with the Lord. And someday when this journey is over in our heart, beats that one last time, we just step over into glory. The presence of God. I know that most of you here have a personal saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. But I'm persuaded in an assembly of this many people there, there's some here today who've never bowed the knee to our King. Who've never confessed with their lips, Jesus is Lord, your greatest need is a relationship with God through faith in the Son of God.
what Jesus did for me so many decades ago, he'll do for you. You see, I don't understand it all. No, you won't. Even after you come to Christ and you walk with the Lord for decades, you don't understand it all. We'll spend all eternity searching out the riches of our God and our King. But here's what you have to know. Number one, you have to know that you're a sinner, that you transgress God's holy covenant. Therefore, you are alienated from God, separated from God, unable to be right related to God because of your sinfulness and that you're unable to do anything about that on your own. The second thing you have to know is that Jesus died for you. He shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you'll come to him in simple, childlike, Faith, repenting of your sins and putting your trust in him, he will save you. The promise of scripture is that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can be saved today. In a moment, we're going to stand and our pastors will be here to counsel you and pray with you and point you to the Savior. This is your opportunity. You're not here today by happenstance or accident. God brought you here that your life might be transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God, and that you might receive Jesus by faith and enter into the life which is truly life, which gives you pleasures now in his presence, and as David said, eternal pleasures at God's right hand. We stand and sing together. Come while we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.